Hey, thank you so much for tuning into another episode of Human Cogs. We absolutely love diving into these conversations and they always give way more than they take every time. But we can get more of these episodes and stories out to more people like you if you could help us to be found on the pod channels. So the best way for you to do that is to hit subscribe and give us a few stars on Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. We super appreciate it and we have stacks more human stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries coming your way very soon. Sushi Das is an award-winning British-Australian journalist of more than 25 years who spent much of her career at The Age, where she held a series of senior reporting and editing positions. She's the winner of two Melbourne Press Club awards, including Best Columnist, and she currently works as a freelance columnist and researcher for RMIT ABC Fact Checked. A brilliant writer and storyteller, Sushi is the author of Deranged Marriage, an affectionate, often hilarious memoir of growing up in London at the height of the 1970s, in a strict and very traditional Indian household. While there, she raged against the control of her father and tried desperately to avoid an arranged marriage. Education was Sushi's passport to freedom and it enabled her to escape to Australia in her 20s to live the life she wanted for herself and to find her own place in the world on her terms as she navigated the tug between Eastern expectations and Western desires. Like so many of us, she has grappled with parental and cultural pressures that clash with her own deep needs for independence and justice. So she reflects on the role of mothers in raising strong daughters, in not repeating the patterns of the past, and in letting your children be free to emerge into who they are. As she says, I do not own my daughter. I am her custodian. I am the bow and she is the arrow. Here's our conversation with Sushi. Sushi Das, welcome to Human Cogs. Great to have you here. You described growing up in the 1970s in London as a culturally messed up time. Feminists were telling women they could be whatever they wanted. Skinheads were yelling at dark-skinned foreigners to go home and the boomtown rats were singing about looking after number one. So take us back to your family at this time and what some of your formative memories were during those years. So I would say my main memory is actually being locked up in the house and not being able to go out because my dad was very, very strict. And so everything I learned about the world was not just school, but what I saw on TV and um, listening to music. And Bob Geldof was so important um, in my life because his lyrics, it was like he wrote those lyrics for me. Um, and I hung on to every single word. Um, and it was because of Bob Geldof's lyrics, I think, that I really felt that I had to be who I wanted to be. Um, And that's, I suppose, what made me sort of uh, chase my dreams. Um, And of course, I was uh, influenced by, uh, you know, that sort of wave of feminism in the 70s. And I remember asking my mum, you know, or rather telling my mum, you know, that I, I was a feminist. And I remember her saying, you know, it will pass. Don't worry. <laughs> it's, cur- Don't worry. it's curable. <laughs> it's curable. 
So those were kind of, you know, and watching Top of the Pops on TV and the nine o'clock news, the BBC, and watching Kate Adie standing in front of a tank and giving a sort of report in that lovely clipped accent of hers, urgent but compassionate. And I just wanted to be a journalist like her and I wanted to go out there and be me and and I just thought that there, I just saw so much potential that, for, that you could do stuff like that. And yet I was just sort of completely restricted, even physically in my movements, because my dad wouldn't, you know, he wasn't very keen on me going out anywhere. And so whenever I went out, I'd have to pretend that I was just going to the shops for sort of girl stuff or, but really I was just nipping down to the, you know, you know, to see my friend. And as I, when I got older, going to the pub, of course, you know, that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, no, it was really difficult, especially when you were calling your dad at sort of eight in the evening and saying, yeah, I, I'm in the library, Dad, I'll be home soon. And really there was sort of pints being pulled in the background and Madonna playing or whatever it was, you know. It was <laughs> well, just, yeah. Why was your dad so controlling? My dad uh, moved to um, London in the early 1960s. And he came from, um, you know, a family where, well, it, it's a profoundly patriarchal culture, okay, um, Punjabi Indians. And um, and so you imagine he was young, he was 22 or something along those lines, and he came into London uh, just when the 1960s were sort of taking off. And he saw girls wearing skirts as wide as a belt, tall boots, boobs, sex, drugs, rock and roll. And I think that he, I think he was absolutely fascinated by it, but he was also scared by it. And then, of course, when he went on to have two daughters, it was absolutely paramount that he protected us from those kinds of influences because he wanted us to grow up and be good Indian girls, which we but, well, I wasn't anyway. <laughs> and your sister? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yes, she's very good. She's a very good Indian girl, married a doctor, the one I was meant to marry. Um, but um, and three lovely kids, beautiful house in America, swimming pool. Obviously, I married the wrong guy. <laughs> well, what do you mean the one you were meant to marry? Uh, my parents introduced me to a number of boys as potential marriage partners because it was an, it, they wanted me to have an arranged marriage. I'm the oldest and um, they introduced me to these guys and I didn't, you know, I just did not want to have an arranged marriage. It wasn't that they were no good. They were great. They, you know. For someone uh, else. Yeah, yeah, for someone else. <laughs> that's right. And, you know, um, they were intelligent and handsome and all the rest of it. But for me it was about I had to make my own choice and I did not feel comfortable um, marrying effectively a stranger. How old are you when that process starts? Oh, I think I must have been 19 or 20 um, when it started and, yeah, probably went uh, until I was about 23, which is when I got married the first time to someone I chose, which obviously was calamitous. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So before that, could you, like, date guys or was your date? No, God, no, 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 right. no, no, no. No, I, no, there was no dating. We didn't even mention boys. My dad didn't even say the word boys. We didn't say the word boys. He used to call them undesirables, you know. He'd, if I was going somewhere, he'd say, will there be any undesirables there? And I was like, uh. <laughs> Likely. Yeah. <laughs> so it's this very strong story that you're telling of living in two worlds. Yeah. And feeling so conflicted and torn because you speak warmly of your parents. What was your relationship like with them, albeit frustrated? 
Yeah, at the time it was really difficult. So, you know, we had this superb clash between uh, their Eastern expectations and my Western desires. Yeah. It was really tough living with them. You know, I was a teenager. I slammed a lot of doors. <laughs> uh, I shouted a lot and uh, I didn't swear, but I did shout a lot. And, and I, you know, I stormed out of the room and all that kind of stuff. Um, but now that I'm um, 57 years old, I have a very different relationship with my parents. We've been through what I call the ice age, where they didn't want to know me anymore. And I moved to Australia. We didn't talk to each other for, oh, I don't know, four, maybe five years or so. Because um, I got married to someone I wanted, who happened to be white. And then I was married to him for 13 years. And then we got divorced, which was even harder to tell them, um, because that was the case of, well, you've done the wrong thing and now you're doing the double wrong thing. Well, why we told you so. Yeah, mm. so yes. And it was the whole I told you so. It took me almost a year to really tell them properly. Then I had six years of, you know, isolation. <laughs> that was me putting myself into, you know, a space where I was trying to work out what the hell is happening here. And then just before I think my, you know, biological clock I was about to tick over, um, I met someone and I got married again at 41. And he also happened to be white. <laughs> Maybe not just happen. I don't think it's a dink. No, he, well, he worked, well, we worked together. So that's how I met him, you know, so. In Australia? Yeah, yeah, in Australia. So, and then we got married. So, husband number one, you met where? Oh, in London. So, and we got married in London. When you say you, there was a clash of Eastern expectations with Western desires, are you an outlier? Are you a, you know, uh, are you the only person listening to Bob Geldof and he's telling it as another way forward? What was it in you that, that made you see the world differently to, to that of your parents? I don't really know. Maybe it's just my genetic makeup, but I was just angry. And I was inflamed by social injustice, as you are when you're 14 or whatever. I always wanted to be a journalist. And being, being, wanting to be a journalist was all about, I wanted to tell people stuff that I thought they didn't know. And, and the thing I wanted to tell them was there's girls like me who can't go anywhere. And my dad wants me to have an arrangement. Does anybody know this? You know, so I really desperately wanted to tell them that. It was at that time, I've never joined anything apart from Amnesty International at the time and I actually joined Amnesty International because I <laughs> it's going to sound really stupid but I, I felt like I was a prisoner and I was like a thought uh, you know a, like a political prisoner because it was what I thought you know my mum and dad did not agree with what I thought which was that I should be free to choose my own partner and all the rest of it and I sort of somehow related to um, Amnesty International and you know dad was the sort of the big tyrant and all that kind of stuff yeah so I don't know. I think it was just a really desperate need to tell people stuff I think they didn't know or mm. I thought they didn't know. But I didn't know that there were lots of Indian girls in Britain at the time like me and Pakistani girls um, and who were all going through the same thing. Uh, we just happened to live in a really white area. So I didn't know any other Indian um, or brown girls. Um, it wasn't until much later that I thought, oh, there's all these other people who were going through the same thing I was, and I had no idea, you know. And no shared experience with your very good sister? Well, it was tough because she's two years younger than me, and, you know, if I had gone off and done my own thing and dishonoured my family and blackened their name, nobody would have married her. 
So it was really important that I didn't ruin everything for her. I mean, you know, my dad introduced me to a number of men. I said no to them. And then the last one, my dad sort of introduced him to my sister and said, you know, what about her? <laughs> and, uh, and they both said yes. And I now know, I didn't know then, that partly my sister had said yes because she didn't want to further enrage my parents and she didn't want to yeah, make it worse, you know. She knew what I was going to do. And so she said yes and they got married and she remains happily married. And then I told my parents that I wanted to marry someone I'd chosen. I just wanted her safely married wow. away so that I could do what I wanted to do. What's your relationship with your sister like now? It's good. Uh, we've always been sort of good. We've had our ups and downs, of course. But, um, yeah, no, we've always had a very solid um, relationship and a good friendship. And she lives in the United States and we talk often about the world you know the universe and everything very different good. paths you guys yeah, yeah. but she, he was a doctor so she married an indian doctor i didn't um and my brother the youngest of us he he also married outside as well he married um a chinese girl and my parents were like you know all hell has fallen on their heads because their oldest sort of goes off and marries a uh, white man, or well, two white men eventually, um, and, and, and their son marries a Chinese girl. <laughs> and my sister in the middle was the only one who married an Indian who also happens to be a doctor, which is kind of like the highest level of Indian you could possibly get to Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, growing up in that very Eastern, you know, a lot of expectation and um, ritual and um, expectation sort of around your path. What parts of that now that you are, where you're at in your own life, what parts of your culture and and, the, and that upbringing is still inherent in you now. Okay, so more now than ever before, because as you get older, you retrace your steps and you go backwards and you suddenly realise that your parents are actually people um, who used to be young ones and they had lives and dreams and expectations just like you do. And, and you suddenly feel shit for all the things you did. Um, and, and so you go back and you try and work out who was I then? What have I become? Who are my parents? And all of those questions that we all ask ourselves as we get older. And um, it's, ask, it's the asking of those questions that makes us um, improve ourselves. Um, so, yeah, I, I make sure that um, my daughter, my own daughter, doesn't ever not know what her roots are. Um, so, you know, Indianness is really important now. So, you know, we actually celebrate Diwali more wildly than we ever did in my own parents' house. What, what's Diwali? So Diwali is um, a festival of lights. It's the biggest Indian festival in the year. It's the equivalent of Christmas. It's uh, symbolised by the triumph of, uh, you know, light over darkness. And um, the story behind it is that a couple of deities, um, Ram and Sita, were exiled from their village. And after 14 years, they returned and the villagers all turned all the lights on and lit lots of candles so they could find their pathway, you know, back home. And so we put lots of lights on and we put candles on um, and, and it's, uh, it's, you know, we buy gifts and we have a feast and my daughter was away um, at boarding school at the time on Diwali this year. So we just lit one of those, you know, those fake candles <laughs> and I just put it in her room um, and we kept those lights on all night. Um, 
So we always leave at least one light on. All night. Probably not good for the environment, but we only leave one light on. <laughs> you know, I'm quite partial to a tear, but are you tearing up too? No, I'm quite uh, hard. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Because I'm tearing up at this story of leaving the light out on to let you return home. Yeah. And the story that you're telling is one of, of not feeling welcome at home. Yeah. And now the loudest tradition or ritual that you've brought with you from your Eastern roots is about being welcome at home. Mm. Mm. I d- I'm, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm the luckiest person in the world um, uh, because... I managed to do what I wanted to, um, exercise choice over my life and my future partner. And, and while I did lose my parents for a while, I managed to find my way back to them and they managed to find their way back to me. Mm. So that's really important for me that I didn't have to sacrifice my parents in the end and they didn't have to sacrifice me. That is mm. so much more than a Eastern Western uh, clash. Is so many families and in, in generations want to go their own way, and the hurt that develops from that leaves estrangement in its wake. Yeah. What did you do in order to rebuild the and, and repair that rupture? When I was in Australia, um, I hadn't spoken to them for years. Oh, look, it's, it's, it was just weird. You know, I, it was really hard to know how to communicate with them. I think they didn't know how to communicate with me, you know, and I, I sort of reached out to them. I made a tape, um, I recorded my voice, sent it to them, just talking. A few weeks later, a sort of little tape arrived in the post and I sort of um, picked it up and, and, I, and I sort of stuck it in the tape recorder and um, um, there was my father's voice saying hello and my mother's voice and my brother was there and, you know, members of the family and I just burst out crying. And it was – and they were in the room. There was their voices in the room 11,000 miles away and it was so much more than any letter could ever <laughs> have conveyed, just hear their voices. And um, so that for me – uh, I just realized there was lots of emotion there and we had to connect. And I think they felt the same way too, because there's nothing like, um, you know, absence to make the heart grow fonder. And I think that's sort of what happened. Um, and, and also I was as far away from London as I could possibly be in Melbourne. I suppose it could have been in Hobart. That would have been further, <laughs> but I was far away and, uh, we felt, we felt the distance between us. Forgiven. I mean, how did you each party account for that absence? Like, was there forgiveness or how did you bridge that? No, divide? it took a long time. It took years and years after that to slowly, slowly, um, you know, every time my mum said something with an edge to it, I had to stop myself from going back to being that 15 year old and slamming the door. And I had to actively educate my own brain, you know, to not react to that. Um, and, and, and I still do it. You know, I, I remember for a few years ago um, when we all met up at my sister's in America and it was a freezing cold day and I wore a short skirt and my mum said, you know, is that a good idea to wear, don't you have a longer, why don't you wear the jean? She said, um, <laughs> and I said, no, it's going to be fine. I'll be fine. And, and, she, she, and I said, you know, I'm 40 something years old or whatever I was at the time. 
I can wear what I want and, and went outside freezing cold New Jersey winter day and I thought yep probably should have worn jeans <laughs> so I don't know she still tells me what I think I ought to be doing so does dad but um, I think a, a lot's changed when I had my own daughter and I sudden I think I felt a sort of uh, uh, a kind of a gear shift where they um, thought okay she's a mother now and mothers are different you know they yeah are. they thought that or you thought that I think they thought she's a mother now and with motherhood comes some sort of wisdom and longer skirts mm. and uh, yeah long skirts and a bit of jean yeah and, and you have and, said and cardigans and moisturizer in your handbag exactly <laughs> and saggy boobs um, <laughs> you have later. said that quote having a daughter is your biggest act of rebellion what did you mean by that so when a girl is born in an Indian family, um, not much is done. Everybody says, oh, child is healthy, born, fine. When a boy is born in uh, an Indian family, there is a lot of celebrating and a lot of sweets are distributed. Uh, you know, you would take things to your workplace, you would, you know, uh, celebrate. Everybody would be slapping each other on the back and it would be a wonderful, marvellous thing. But when a girl is born, it, that's not what happens because a girl is a liability. She has to have a dowry uh, um, when she's married off. Boys are income earners. And they are the welfare state for parents as they get older. So it's not such a big deal when you have a girl. And whenever a woman is pregnant, the desire of her own parents, her partner, her sisters and brothers, the whole community is, please, please, let it be a boy. Okay. And so when um, I was pregnant, um, I knew it was a girl. And so I rang my mom and I said, mom, it's a girl. And she said, oh, never mind. <laughs> um, and uh, anyway, we got over that. Except, um, except on a serious note, do you get over that? Because that must have been her sentiment when she was pregnant with you. Yes, quite possibly it was. But for me, um, I didn't think that because I just thought, yes, yes, it's a girl. That's a big fuck you to the patriarchy, you know. And um, sorry, am I allowed to say that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah we love Particularly just in that context. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's for me. It was like it was like the ultimate rebellion. I I produced another girl. Deal with it. Well, fuck fuck you to the patriarchy of your culture. To yes. the patri- yeah, specifically to that. Yeah, specifically to that. Yeah. Help us understand um, your beliefs now around arranged marriage. It's sort of a tangent to what we're talking about, but it's interesting. You made reference a few times to your sister's happy marriage. How do you make sense of that? Um, I think, well, my parents had an arranged marriage too. And I think in my parents' era, arranged marriages worked because one person was prepared to say, yes, sir, no, sir. And to say, okay, you're the boss. Um, and I think my mum did that. And that helps when you have an arranged marriage. In my sister's case, uh, no one can tell her what to do. She's always the boss. Um, but I think they have a mutual understanding. And I think also that um, her husband is a different kind of Indian. He's a more modern, educated uh, Indian, and so he doesn't carry all those patriarchal kind of, um, you know, baggage from the past. So my sister was sort of able to meet him, you know, halfway, as it were, and so it's worked for them. These days, even arranged marriages, uh, they still happen, but they, they seem to be more semi-arranged marriages. So, uh, you know, you have websites like shadi.com. Shadi means marriage. So you can look for a partner and the 
you know, you yourself can go on there, you can look for a partner online, and then you might sort of, if you see someone, you might then say to your parents, this person's good. And then the parents might make the first approach to the other person. What are so, the parameters of the matching, though? How are you working out that that arrangement would, would be satisfactory for both families? Like, Well, I think for, for older generations, there'd be possibly some people would still be looking for the same cast. Um, but um, we know, uh, you know, for girls what really counts is the parents will be looking for a man who is uh, educated. If she, if their daughter is educated, yep. Um, marriage material is that the husband should be at least the same level of education. Uh, if you're a tall girl, your parents will be wanting a tall boy. I remember my mum saying, you know, you're growing too tall. How will, how will we ever find a husband for you? Like it was my fault I was growing too tall. <laughs> and I think if you're, um, you know, the, the premium is on an educated girl with fairer skin colour, uh, who lives in a Western country, preferably America, where you can marry her and get a green card. Um, so it's a lot to do with migration, improvement of life, um, especially if you get a partner from India. My parents were always threatening that. Oh, we're going to find you a boy, from, a nice boy from India because the Indian boys in Britain have become corrupted. <laughs> um, they're undesirables as well now. Yes. Uh, so the, the guy my sister married wasn't Indian boy from India. What are your thoughts on the role of love in, in marriage? Yeah, love doesn't really play a part in arranged marriages because it's a union of two families for economic reasons. That's the historical background of that. So these days love has entered the equation because you've got websites that advertise, you know, and um, I think the parents are more willing to let their kids um, choose for themselves um, and I think that they've come, it's, it's, it's changed a lot, you know. So that's why I call them semi-arranged mm. marriages because even if you did find someone and say he was the wrong colour, the wrong cast, the wrong whatever, your parents still have the veto to say, well, do you think this is a good idea, you know. Mm. So Would the generation like your parents or your mother who's had to subjugate so much of herself to be the passive person in that relationship to make it, the arrangement work, would there be a certain amount of, you know what, I've done this, I've done this hard, who are you to go out there and think you can have what you want, you know, and marry for love? Like is there a, is there a certain amount of that in that dynamic because they're such fundamentally different I think the dynamic is that in these, uh, you know, patriarchal cultures, it's about controlling Indian women. It's about controlling the womb, okay, essentially, um, so you don't want a girl to marry out. I'm, I'm talking historically. I'm not talking now. Uh, you don't want a girl to sort of marry out because she might marry out of your group, your social group, and you need to keep that community together. And so it's really important that um, girls aren't left to decide for themselves who they might marry. They, there has to be some influence about who they should marry. And And I think... That um, and, and this whole thing is policed, okay, and it's policed by the women themselves. So mothers will ensure that their daughters marry the right people, and if they don't, it will be your mother who will ostracise you or cut you off or criticise you. Hmm. And for a new daughter-in-law, 
It's the mother-in-law that will keep her reined in, okay? So in many ways, it's women policing their own oppression. And isn't it wonderful when the patriarchy can get women to police their own oppression? Marvellous job done. Um, and, and I think that's what... That, that's how it works, you know. It's about keeping those communities together and communities do that by controlling women and their wombs. So you're a mother of a daughter now who's 15? She's 15, yeah. Yep. And how are you raising her? What's the messaging around some of the topics we're discussing? I raise her very consciously and by that I mean that I'm very aware of making sure that she grows up understanding that she is equal to any man or woman. I go out of my way to teach her the kinds of things I had to put up with. And I've taught her that from an early age so that she knows that she doesn't have to. I want this fight for men and women to be equal to stop with her, with me. I, want it, I don't want her to have to fight this thing for another generation. I want that thing to stop. You know, when she was younger, you know how it is, in the shops, there's pink clothes for girls. It's, it seems to be getting worse. Blue things for boys. You go into toy shops, there's all the girls' toys on one side, the boys' toys on the other. I hate that. We've actually gone backwards since the 1970s. So she would, you know, because of influence of kinder or whatever, um, you know, go towards the pink things. We never stopped her from going towards pink. And we always used to say to her, you know, pink is good, but did you know there is also punk? <laughs> and it was a thing that I used to say to her. And it was my way of always putting an alternative. <laughs> so you let them have whatever society is putting in front of them. You can't deny that. Just like my dad tried to deny me certain things and I just rebelled against it. So I just refused to not let her have it. I couldn't be that kind of parent. I just make sure I put other alternatives in front of her as well. Mm. You said you've got closer to your culture as you do, as we all age, we, we get more interested or fascinated with what we were made of. What parts of you, as you mother your daughter, um, do you think are pretty indelible that are part of the way you were parented? Uh, yeah, well, there's some things you uh, cannot uh, stop yourself from doing, okay? So my dad used to, um, he's an avid newspaper reader, he used to cut out articles and leave those articles in strategic places around the house where my eye might fall upon them <laughs> with headlines like, you know, broccoli, the new superfood, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that kind of <laughs> I mean, my dad still leaves me articles, but and there are some superfood content there when yeah. I think about it. <laughs> mm. I do that. I cannot stop myself. So except I don't cut them out of newspapers because I just send the link <laughs> to my daughter um you know so i've been sending her links left right and center while she's been at howquest so she comes back and reads them all um i the way i see parenting is that i don't own my child okay just like my parents thought they owned me i don't own her i'm only the bow and she's the arrow okay that's how i see things some, I do sometimes feel that um, I'm trying to bring in a bit of the Eastern and, and the Western uh, together. And I know, you know, uh, people jokingly have said, oh, you're a tiger mom. I am not a tiger mom. But yeah, I'm, I'm firm. I make sure I set strong boundaries. And that doesn't always 
sit comfortably with my partner who has a much more relaxed approach. I'm, I'm the disciplinarian in the house and he's um, the softy dad. And I know that that's a, a formula repeated in lots and lots of uh, households. For me, being Indian, what really comes out strongly, and this is me channeling my dad, and I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. But for me, I, the first thing for my daughter always is education. And I will say to her what my dad used to say to me, which is go get your education because once you have that, they can't take it away mm. from you. Mm. And when my dad was saying that to me, it was about once you're educated, you can get a good job and then maybe, you know, the racists in Britain won't kick you out. You know, you won't be repatriated. That was a real fear for par- people like my parents, being sent home, you know. So for us, we grew up with this, get your education because they can't take it away from you. And it was so important because it's, yeah, because it's all that stuff in my head and no one can take that away. It was really important. And I say that to my daughter all the time, get your education. It is your passport to freedom. Mm. It will take you much further than not having education. So so I'm, I'm a typical Indian. I'm not telling her she ought to be a doctor. But it would be nice if she was. <laughs> why, why would it be nice? <laughs> oh, because, you know, I think it would be a rewarding career. You could save someone's life. COVID has told us how important doctors are. I think it's a, a very respectable, good career to have. I don't think that's where she's going. Um, I think she's she's still working out where, you know, she's talked about being a human rights lawyer, um, which is good. And I'm proud. Of, I want her to do whatever she wants. Just... Um, as my dad once said to me, don't come home from university and tell me you want to be a poet. There's no money in poetry. <laughs> so I say that to my daughter too. Don't tell me you want to be a poet because there's no money in it. <laughs> and she's the child of two writers, of two wordsmiths, of two journalists. Yeah, journos. that's right, she is. <laughs> yeah, so it's shameful. <laughs> yes, you should be deeply ashamed of yourself. <laughs> I mean, you, you both value the written word as a tool to communicate and influence. No, um, look, I, I'm, 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 I'm joking in the sense that um, uh, if she wants to be a writer, I'd be very proud of her. And she is a good writer. I've seen what she's um, written. I set her essays to do all the time, um, which is why some people might be calling me a tiger mom. But oh, you, you set her essays? Well, well, what I, does that mean? Some... <laughs> Sometimes I will say to her, like if there's a local competition, the local council sometimes has writing competitions, local libraries have writing competitions. You see these things, you know, and I encourage her to write for those things. And, of course, it's always, oh, what shall I write? You know, I don't know what to write. So I'll then set her a project. So, for example, when she was um, 11, she started her periods early. Uh, she was about 11 when she started. And I said, why don't you write 500 words on uh, starting your period at an early age, because 11 is quite early. But when you write your essay, you're not to mention the word period and you're not to mention the word blood. Off you go. Um, And she went off and she wrote um, a piece about starting her period and she didn't mention those two words. She talked about something in my pants that looked like dry red paint and she did a marvellous job. She really did. Um, anyway, we entered it for a local council competition and she won first prize, you know. And it was so good because it was the first time in her life she thought, well, 
I got rewarded for something I did. And I think it's that kind of thing is really important. But anyway, so that's what I mean when I say I set her essays. I just and encourage her. That, that topic in itself is sort of an act of rebellion too, isn't it? It is, because when she started a period, I said to her, go to school and tell your friends that you started your period if you feel comfortable. And she came back and she said, oh, I, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable telling them that. And I said, that's fine. But there will be a time when you do. And there will be girls in your class who will be very shy about this topic. You don't need to be shy. You go ahead and talk about it. And there'll be lots of girls in your class who will be so happy that you mentioned it, that they will feel free to talk about it. Because for generations, girls have tried to hide that they have periods. In my house, we weren't even allowed to keep those panty pads in the bathroom. We kept them in our bedroom and then you'd sneak one into a pocket and then go into the uh, bathroom with that. It was like we weren't ever meant to even mention, you know, and you couldn't put it on the shopping list if mum and dad were going shopping or anything like that. You had to sort of quietly buy them in in the chemist yourself. Um, It was stupid. When I look back, I just think it was really stupid. And I remember this wonderful day when... Um, my dad, I can't even remember what we were talking about. I was a teenager and I had got a panty pad. I was on my way to school or somewhere and I'd put it in a brown paper bag. So it was, you know, hidden and I put it in my bag and, um, my dad said something like, you know, have you, have you taken your sandwiches? Don't forget your sandwiches or something like that. I can't remember what the conversation was about. Anyway, it ended up with him looking through my bag. And um, <laughs> probably looking for the sandwiches. And he pulled out this brown paper thing, brown paper bag, and he said, "What's this? Sneaking biscuits to school?" And I just sort of, and I was so embarrassed and ashamed that I had periods. And he was holding this panty pad that was inside the brown paper bag, and he was thinking it was a biscuit. I don't know why he thought it was a biscuit. Anyway, he opened it and he took it out, and he went, "Oh." And the sh- then the embarrassment was all on my dad's face when he realized what it was and he put it back in, sort of quietly put it back into my bag. And, and both of us were like thoroughly embarrassed in that sort of moment. And I just remember that. And when I look back and I think, God, it was so stupid, you know, that we were made to feel ashamed, you know. Um, girls shouldn't feel that way. So that's why I was, I was trying to encourage her. And she did eventually. A few weeks later, she came back and she said, Mom, I did something today. I, I told the girls at school that um, I started my period. And I said, well done. Mm. What a brave girl you mm. are, you know. That's good. And that, that echoes the story that you shared as a teenager, feeling like you were the only brown girl, in your words, in your neighbourhood or your community. Yeah. And wishing that you knew other people who walked in your shoes and experienced Absolutely. your story. So you're inviting her to do that. Yeah. Women are stronger when they are together, um, when they um, share their hopes and dreams and their, you know, failings and their defeats and their anguishes, we're just stronger like that. Um, And I just encourage her. I sent her to a girl's school, you know. I wanted her to have good friends who are girls and and feel a sense of, well, sisterhood, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But I hate that word, but, you know. As you said earlier, though, like women can be complicit uh, not support each other. We can we can see that, you know, oh, yeah. uh, that women can tear each other down as well and be very competitive. What do you do? I mean, you, you're a very accomplished journalist and, and in your work, you know, you're a leader and you, you lead teams. What's your view on women in leadership um, and, and the level of support that you, you get? Look, I think that's a really complex. Um, it's, uh, it's really, really hard what you've just asked me there because, 
you know, I don't know the right answer. Um, I think it's really hard to, I think women have had navigated this journey in their own way. So uh, when I was in a leadership position at the age, I really hated the fact that men just got up every day, put the same bloody suit on and went to work. And there was me trying to work out what's the right clothing to wear to send the right message. So in the end, I, um, I, I had two suits made, bespoke suits made of uh, men's uh, suit material, actually, um, finest quality. Um, but except I didn't have trousers; I just had a skirt and a long jacket, a very um, short skirt, yeah, no. not, not a jean. Mm. <laughs> I had progressed to you know slightly above the knee by then, um, and um, I had two suits made, and I wore the same bloody suits to work every single day. Just changed my shirt, <laughs> so I just did what they did. <laughs> So that reminds me of the story, um, Carl, and when Lisa Wilkinson was on the Today Show uh, with with Carl Stefanovic, and as an experiment, he wore the same suit every day for a year. No one commented. She would have received hundreds of thousands of, that yellow didn't make your skin very look good, and I think those earrings made you look a bit older than you are. And, And a year went by and no one commented on him wearing the same suit. Wow. Wow. I mean, yeah, if a woman wore the same dress every day, you'd notice it and you'd be commenting on it. But, you know, so I wore a suit virtually every single day. Um, but, you know, I just thought, no, I'm going to wear makeup and I'm going to be a female. It's it's what I am, deal with it. But I'll try and meet you at, at your level when I can. And I just remember the newsroom, um, it was a round table. News editors would sit round it. And uh, I was the op-ed editor and I always joined conference slightly later. You know, in those early days, they just wouldn't move aside to let me in on that round table. And I like felt, physically create the space yeah, for you. they physically didn't. So I used to create this sort of outer circle, you know, <laughs> behind them. It was really silly. Um, and in the end, I remember one day sort of marching up to the table with my papers in my hand and, and sort of going, you know, just before I reached two metres before I got to the table going... <laughs> With this sort of loud, stupid laugh, uh, sorry, cough. And as I got nearer, I sort of dragged a chair really kind of aggressively and sort of yanked it into the circle. And then they moved aside. And I thought, ah, that's how I do it, is it? I just make a lot of noise and create a lot of, take up a lot of physical space. Mm -hmm. And after that, it was much easier because I realized that's what I have to do. So I don't want to be like a man, but that was the only way in my little journey to, you know, insert myself into that space. That's the complexity, isn't it, where you see women in leadership or positions of of power that they have to manify somewhat to then be inside that patriarchal system and behave in ways that are more male as opposed to adopting more feminine or whatever the other traits are. But the the reality is, yes, you do have to man up, if you like, (laughs) to get into that male space. But once you're in it... You don't then have to behave like them, okay? You can nurture female talent younger than you from that space. And that's, I think, what I've tried to do. So I tried to make sure I got as many female voices on the op-ed pages as I could and diverse voices as well. I look for young women around me who I think have the potential and I want to help them. I'm still doing it in the job I do now, you know. But that's that's what I think you'd have to do once you get to that, once you get old 
and 57. That's what you do. That's how you give back. You have to. When you make reference to the job you do now, what are you referring to? I'm, uh, I work for RMIT ABC Fact Check um, and I'm chief of staff there at the moment. Yeah, I've been doing that for four years. Tell us a bit about that. Well, my um, job uh, for years has been to um, we well, essentially we just listen to what public figures say in the public domain, like mo- mostly politicians, and we uh, we might pick a claim that they've made and then we assess whether it's accurate or not and we give it a verdict, and it might be uh, correct or misleading or false or poppycock. Um, <laughs> so you call bullshit, really? Yeah. 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 We just did one. Um, uh, we just did Alexander Downer, who said that all the jets flying into um, Glasgow um, produced more emissions than all of Scotland. I think it was, and of course that was nonsense. So we said so, and that was the verdict on that one. Nonsense. <laughs> Are you would. Truth seeker, you, were so, you talked about social justice being very big in you. It's interesting that you had that as a, as a young girl and this is what you're actually working in now in, in that role is you're trying to get to the truth of things. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because the job's kind of evolved a little bit because when I first started in 2017, we were looking at claims specifically made by politicians um, or, or rather I should say public figures. It wasn't always politicians. But now we are actually more and more focusing on um, misinformation and disinformation that circulates online, whether it's in the form of um, memes or, you know, messages or tweets or doctored photos and videos and all the rest of it, because that is a serious problem now. And COVID-19 has shown us how bad it can get. And also the uh, 2020 um, US elections, where we really saw a lot of misinformation circulating very, very quickly. It's bad for people's health. It's bad for democracy. It's uh, bad on all sorts of levels. So I'm doing a PhD now in fact-checking, examining how we can make this thing work. And what channels are you sharing the truth in? Well, we usually don't use the word truth. It's a complicated word, truth. Truth and lies. It's also subjective. It goes to sort of... Yeah, uh, well, it goes to sort of motive, I suppose. But um, we tend to use the word accurate and inaccurate information. So in what channels do you share the accurate information? So uh, when we write our fact checks, we, uh, we pub- all our stuff is published on uh, ABC Online. We do TV segments as well. Um, but our platform is the ABC Online. Yeah, because I imagine there's great um, potential for stories f- from there as a source. Yeah. Fact-checking is slightly different to normal daily journalism in that we don't cover day-to-day events. That's the normal daily journalist job. We're specifically looking at claims that a politician has made and then going away, doing deep dives into data and actually, um, you know, verifying that claim um, and, uh, and, and calling on experts to look at the data and, 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 and making a call on whether it's um, accurate information or not. So what did that look like during COVID? Uh, the, we're still COVID, you know, here forever and a day, but at the deepest days of the pandemic, there was so much misinformation. Yeah, it was a nightmare, a real nightmare. I mean, we now produce a, a weekly newsletter called Corona Check in which we produce our debunks. Um, uh, but there was a lot of there was, you know, the, from the premiers right up to the prime minister and every other um, sort of politician making all sorts of claims like, you know, 
we, we've got the fastest rate of immunization or we've got the biggest this or the, you know, highest that. Um, and you just go away and check whether those things are. I, mean, I think the latest one we heard was that Melbourne was the most locked down city in the whole world. And we fact checked that and dis, um, our conclusion was that it wasn't clear cut. Mm. Oh, I've been I've been dining on We've that for that weeks. around even on human cogs. Yeah. Who else is in the running? I think it was um where was it? It was a South American was it um Buenos Aires. Mm. Bra- that, Buenos that, Aires. Oh, that's that, right. that did come up. Yeah. Yeah. Buenos Aires I think was close. Um so I would be a little bit nervous to go out to dinner with you and then I might have one or two wines and then I'd say, Did you know? my God, it was this and a little bit of, you know, hyperbole <laughs> along the way. My kids always say, Mum, you never let the facts get in the way of a good story. <laughs> so what do you do with someone like me at the table? <laughs> I'll put you right if I think you're wrong. Yeah. Take her down. Take her down and put it on public record that it was all bullshit and we called it. Um, it's amazing the work you're doing and it's so, you know, right now in this age of information, it's so important that we have some um, level of accountability for that mis- misinformation disinformation what advice would you have uh for mothers of daughters it's a big ask but given you've shared so much of your own thinking and you've got quite conscious parenting that's going on and it's had its challenges what would be your advice for when we think about bringing young women into the world i just do what feels right but just remember you don't own them you know that is the main thing i think for me i do not own her i'm just a custodian Um, and you know, my daughter has been away for a year at boarding school and man, I missed her so much. Um, but I'm so glad that she did go away at the age of 15, um, because I now have a taste of what it's going to be like when she goes for good. And, um, I know I will cry and cry and cry and cry. Um, but, um, and it was... I don't know, it made me realize even more that we're just here to guide them and give them the mental toolbox with which they can deal with what is coming their way. And what's coming their way in little spurts all through their life will be disappointment, anguish, heartbreak, uh, failure, defeat, and sometimes just plain bad luck. And you've got to deal with it. Uh, you have to deal with it. Um, and I hope that I'm raising the kind of child who uh, will come across all of these things, just like we all do, um, but can uh, get up, brush herself off and just keep marching onwards. It's really important that she knows that that's what you have to do. And when she does have her victories and when she does have the good times, that she um, has the good grace to be uh, have humility in those victories. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- this is the kind of thing. And, I, and when she was, I remember when she was, you know, very young and I said to my husband, look, if we don't teach her anything, there's only one thing that, you know, I hope she does walk away with. And that is to learn how to be a compassionate human being. Because if you can start from a position of compassion, then, then good things can come from that. And actually, um, when I think about it, the, the thing you can really teach any child, not just a daughter, but any child, is that um, just remember that they learn by watching you. 
not what you tell them to do. And all mothers would know that, all fathers would know that. They watch what you do and then they learn from that. Um, and, and you ask yourself, how then do you teach compassion? Hmm. All right. There are lots of different ways of doing it. For us, what we did was I took her to India when she was nine years old. It was a really important lesson. I knew exactly what I was going to do. I, w- I took her to India when she was nine because that's when I went to India when, when I was nine. We saw lots of beggars and a lot of poverty and illness. And I said to her before we left, um, when we see beggars on the streets, we are not going to give them lots of money. You will feel like you want to, but we're not going to do that. And I want you to just know that from the outset. Um, And she said, why? And I said, because that's not the right thing to do, because you give a beggar money and there'll be another 50 beggars that will come, you know, come from around the corner and ask you for money. So we're just not going to do it. And there were moments, uh, heartbreaking moments, where there were beggars and I did not give them any money. I just walked away from that. Um, we were staying in a place where opposite was an orphanage. And in the orphanage was a little alcove with a little cradle. And uh, you could leave your baby in there if you were a mother who couldn't afford to look after the child or the child was sick. And uh, every day when we came out of the house where we were staying, we would just peek into the cradle, see if there was a baby there. And there never was for the time we were there, but we knew what that cradle was there for. There was a little plaque to explain. And my daughter read it and was horrified that anyone could even leave a baby there. On the day before we left India, um, I said to her, you know, we packed our bags, everything. And I said, now we're going to go for a walk. And we came out of the house and we walked across the road to the orphanage. And uh, we went in there and we asked if they could give us a tour. And we could meet the kids in the orphanage. And we did that deliberately because we wanted to check them out. Um, And it was a clean orphanage. And we looked at the menu that the kids were going to, you know, the the food that they were going to eat that day. We spoke to the person who owned the orphanage. um, And my daughter was there. And she saw all the little kids. Some of them were really babies. Uh, Others were um, older. And then we sat down um, with the person who owned the orphanage and said, okay, we'd like to make a donation. And then we made a donation and we gave them the, um, you know, the money there. And then as we left, I said to my daughter, that is how you give money to people who need it. Not on the street, but where you've gone in, you've checked that the money is going to the right place. That's how you give money. And I knew that we were going to do that in one way or another. We would demonstrate that. But for me, it was really important. And I know that she will always remember that. And I know when she came back, uh, we came back to Australia and and at school, they said, you know, write what you've been doing during the holidays. That was the story she wrote. So for someone who didn't think they could answer that question, I think you just nailed that. And for (laughs) our listeners who can't see you, your T-shirt says, in a world where you can be anything, be kind. Sushi, we like to end our conversation on human cogs with the same question with all our guests, and that is to ask, uh, with the complexities and the challenges of life, who do you think is doing human really well? Oh, my God. God, oh, <laughs> that's an even harder question. <laughs> um, well, what do you mean by that? <laughs> oh, however, you however you hear it, who who is who is humaning well? Who is being a good human being and who is doing it in a way that no one else is doing it? Um, I suppose. I mean, this might sound corny, but I I really I really have to say that I think Jacinda Ardern. 
um, has been a, a fabulous politician, and I pick her because um, I deal. I look at what politicians do and say all day long, and uh, sometimes I'm disgusted um, and very disappointed, um, and other times uh, I think that they could have done it better. But when I look at her, I think that she embodies um, what we would like more politicians to do, to show compassion. I think she did that with the uh, Christchurch uh, shooting. She's been firm in her resolve over dealing with COVID, um, you know, um, and I think that she has won the respect of uh, New Zealanders as well, but not just New Zealanders, people all around the world. Mm. Um, and I think she's a very impressive woman and uh, and she's in our region. Mm-hmm. So New Zealand's kind of Australia, so she's ours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, we'll claim her anyway. Yeah, and she right. has Her leadership is soft and strong and where we think about you don't have to man up, yep. she's found a way to be a very strong feminine presence in the world and, and lead well. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing all your wisdom and story with us. We wish you light over darkness <laughs> um, and a pathway home to yourself. Mm. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you both. Mm, beautiful. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 